Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, it's another listener questions episode. That's the Listener Questions episode song, which I sing every time. No, I don't actually sing it every time. It's a new, new thing every time, off-the-cuff song. Anyways, uh, yeah, it, I love to answer your questions. You write to me, and I read them. Sometimes I have to do research because I'm not perfect. I don't got all the knowledge in my head, but it usually sends me on a really interesting research journey so I love doing that and if you are listening and you're like hey I want you to answer a question what the heck you can email me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com and I try to answer all the questions I get either on the show or responding to you via electronic mail so let's get right into it shall we here's the first email Hi, Katie. As a cat owner, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed the episode you did about the evolution of cats. It was also fun to hear about finding the ping pong ball and how many cats like playing with them because I'd just gotten some ping pong balls for my cats. They're a big hit with Fezzik. Here's a video of him playing with one. I've watched the video. I can confirm. It's very cute. 
The email continues. I also had a question. My cats, who are indoor only, often get the zoomies and will tear around the house for no apparent reason. I've heard that other cats do this, too, and so do some dogs. Do you know if this is something that only domestic animals do? I was wondering if it's because they don't run around as much outside that they have to get out their energy this way and that probably animals in the wild wouldn't need these random bursts of running around. But if you have any insight, I'd love to hear it. And thanks again for doing the show. I look forward to it every week. Best, Erica. Thank you so much, Erica, for your kind words, your cat stories, and your video of Fezzik playing with ping pong ball. I loved watching that. And great question. So the zoomies are indeed a thing. Cats get it. Dogs get it. So what are they and do they happen to wild animals? So the technical term for zoomies is Frenetic Random Activity Period, or FRAP. Uh, I feel like Zoomies is a little bit of a better name than FRAP, but there you go. According to Dr. Pamela Perry, a behavior resident at Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine, quote, there is no known specific cause of FRAPs in dogs. However, they appear to be a way to release pent-up energy or perhaps to alleviate stress. A dog who has been home all day with nothing to do may feel the need to zoom around the house or yard to expend some of that energy and get some relief from hours of understimulation. Framps also can occur whenever a dog becomes very excited, e.g. when an owner returns after a long absence, end quote. So personally, my dog, Cookie, gets the zoomies after her bath, which is something I've heard happening to a lot of people. I think it's because she hates bathing. She gets pretty anxious, but she kind of has to, you know, just be patient and wait for the bath to end. And so she has all this pent up kind of anxiety. Uh, And then once uh, she's done with the bath, she's probably really relieved, really excited to be done. And then has all this nervous energy that she had to kind of contain while I was bathing her. And so once she's free, she just zooms around. She's releasing all that pent-up stress, all that pent-up energy, uh, running around, playing, acting like a goofball. I mean, maybe like we've experienced this kind of thing. Like when you do something really stressful and you're just like, you're finally done with it. And you're just like, oh, you just got to kind of shake it out. You know, you, you feel kind of like, you know, shaking your whole body, shaking your arms, like kind of jumping a little bit or even doing like a little dance or something. It's like, ah, oh, I got through that. Yes. So it can be a response to both stress or positive things like being really excited to see you um, or just like, you know, kind of they got this extra energy and you know, that maybe they didn't have an opportunity to get out all that energy, so they just got to get it out. Uh, the same kind of zoomies can happen for cats, um, and it works in a similar way, but there are some key differences. So cats do get the zoomies when they need to release energy. Unlike dogs, however, cat zoomies often happen at dawn and dusk, and this is because cats are crepuscular, Uh, meaning that their activity levels are highest at dawn and dusk. And this is when the wild ancestors of our domesticated cats would hunt the most. So your cat has kind of, you know, cats are a bit less domesticated than dogs in a sense. You know, they've retained many more of their wild traits than dogs have. And so your cat may have retained some of these spurts of energy that they get at dawn and dusk and may express it 
in the form of zoomies. So on to the question of whether wild animals get the zoomies. And the answer is yes, absolutely. So fraps, that frenetic random activity period, uh, or zoomies, have been observed in horses, ferrets, wallabies, elephants, and there's probably a lot more. Uh, the trick is, of course, being able to observe an animal long enough to notice the zoomies and document them. Uh, apparently, bunny rabbits also get them, and apparently rabbit owners call them the bunny binkies, which is adorable and really weird. Uh, but the thing is that we often observe these zoomies in captivity because that's, you know, that's where we see them the most. So it is definitely possible that there are fewer zoomies in the wild because there are more opportunities to burn off this extra energy. Uh, so animals in the wild may still do the zoomies, um, but it's possible that they do them less often if they have more chances to burn off that energy. So we kind of need to see some kind of comparative observational study between the same species of wild and captive animal, uh, which I haven't been able to find anything of that nature, and it sounds pretty difficult to pull off, but I will keep my eyes open for any research about it. Uh, yeah, and there was some research regarding rabbits and their frenetic random activity periods. And it didn't seem that having like a larger enclosure meant they would have fewer of that. But it, it's that's not like that's not exactly answering our question. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting question. My guess would be that if you have like a really long day as an animal and you've done a lot of work that day, uh, in terms of either hunting or foraging or running away from predators, you're probably not going to have any excess energy that you expend through zoomies. But if you had not that much going on that day, even in the wild, yeah, sure, I, I don't see why you wouldn't uh, want to express that extra energy because you got it and you got to let it out. So that is that is my guess. But of course, I think it will be great if we could see some good comparative studies between animals in their natural habitats, and animals in captivity. On to the next listener question. A few weeks ago, I accidentally left an apple core on the coffee table and unsurprisingly woke up the next day to hundreds of ants harvesting the leftovers. I love ants as much as the next Creature Feature listener, but I eventually decided to take the apple core, ants included, and toss it into the organic spin in the backyard. Suddenly, I started to worry if ants get around by following pheromone trails. Have I sentenced these ants to live out the rest of their days in exile? Or will they be able to find their way back to the colony even without the pheromones to guide them? And this is from Susie M. This, this is maybe the sweetest email I've ever gotten. So I, I feel that. Like, I, I too sometimes, you know, if there's an ant invasion, you gotta get rid of them, right? Like, you can't be eaten like ants with your cereal or having your apple crawling with ants it's just not workable but I feel bad about it like I don't I don't enjoy getting rid of ants and also that idea of like oh you you pick up a food item that all these ants are on you toss in the trash all, all, are all these ants doomed now to exile um don't worry uh about that though because your ants may indeed find their way home uh, 
pheromones are very important for ant communication, but they are not the only thing that ants can rely on when it comes to navigation. So ants don't need to use pheromones necessarily to find their way home to their colony. Now, the ability of ants to navigate differs from species to species uh, because different species have different behaviors. They have different social structures. Some ants have colonies. Some types of ants don't even have a colony. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but different species will have different methods of navigation. Ants who have a home colony will often have different techniques of finding their way to and from their colony because that is so critical. Yes, they do use pheromone trails laid out by other ants to find food sources, but they have got other navigational tricks up their little teeny tiny sleeves. So there is evidence that certain species of ants can use the sun's position as well as environmental markers to help guide them back to their colonies. Like they're some kind of, I don't know, 1700s ship people, sales, salesmen. That's not <sighs> sailors. Okay, there's the word. Man, I do not have my sea legs. I can barely even speak in seafaring terms. So yes, they can use all of these things to navigate. So a study found that by shifting the apparent appearance of where the sun was with a mirror, researchers were able to confuse ants and send them in the wrong direction. Mean but interesting uh, result. A lot of common ants that we find in our homes have actually been found to use complex navigation skills other than pheromones. There are ants like sugar ants, black carpenter ants um, that, that we've seen this in. But there's also ants primarily found in natural settings such as rock ants. But all of these ants can memorize landmarks or structures and use them to aid in their navigation to and from their colonies. So vision and memorization are really important tools for these ant species. In fact, um, rock ants, which I just mentioned, uh, they do use pheromone trails to lead other ants, but they also excel in teaching routes to other ants through a technique known as tandem running. So there will be a leader ant who will guide a follower ant to food by moving a short distance. She waits for the follower to literally bump into her rear, uh, and then she continues going on like that. She goes a short distance, the follower comes up, bonks into her butt, she moves some more bonks into her butt until the goal is reached. The follower seems to memorize this specific path shown to her by the leader, and it, she doesn't necessarily need a pheromone trail to follow. Uh, and then when she goes back home, she doesn't retrace her steps from this path she followed. She actually uses a different path entirely, one based on her memorization of panoramic views or landmarks that lead her back to her nest. So I would say um, that shows that a lot of these ants, especially the ones that have a, a solid colony that they need to get back to, have a number of different ways to find their way back home. Now, mainly memorizing the visual cues around where their home is uh, obviously, some ants can also use the position of the sun to tell them where their home is. But uh, yeah, like they will memorize a landmark and go towards that landmark and be able to find their home that way. 
In contrast, there are uh, ants called army ants. These are ants that actually encompass a wide variety of species, but they all share these similar characteristics, which is that they do not have a home colony. They just kind of march like a roving band of Vikings who go and forage and pillage and eat everything in their path. Uh, But they do not have that home colony they have to get back to, and they really don't rely on their vision much at all. They do not have good vision. Sometimes they're mostly blind, and they depend mainly on pheromone trails. Uh, They could truly become confused if you pick one up and drop it off in a random location. Um, But in terms of the ants that you probably would find in your kitchen, they are most likely not army ants but probably a species of colony-forming ants. And so I would guess that those ants that you dropped off in your garbage can, as long as they can get out of the garbage can and like reorient themselves to the kitchen, they can probably use visual cues uh, and find their way back home. So fear not, Susie. You have not doomed those ants. Um, probably. <laughs> And you can, you can rest assured they will live another day to come and eat more of your apples. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Next listener question. My girlfriend's cat always holds my hand. He'll move his paw on top of my hand, and he'll move his paw when I move my hand, sometimes digging his claws in to keep my hand in place. He usually does this while laying on my chest and purring. Is he being affectionate or is there more to it than that? I've attached some videos for reference from William T. Hi, William. Watched your videos. Um, (laughs) Very cute. Very, very cute. Uh, This is another adorable question. Uh, And I would say, long answer short, your kitty is indeed being affectionate and possessive. So cats love to use their paws on stuff. They love to scratch things. They love to knead their paws on stuff. Uh, And there's a few reasons. Uh, In part, it's thought that that kneading thing that they do with their paws reminds them of the act of nursing when they were little tiny kittens where they would knead their paws on their mother's tummy, which would stimulate lactation so that they could nurse and drink milk. So when they're making like biscuits, either on a pillow or on your hand or on your lap, they're probably acting out that comforting movement of kneading their paws they did as kittens. Another purpose that they love to use their paws so much is that they actually have scent glands on their paws that they can mark 
what is theirs. Uh, so like if they're kind of digging, scratching at something or digging their kind of claws into something or digging, pressing their little paws, um, they may be marking this thing as like, I like this thing. This is mine. I declare that I own this. I own this person. I own this hand. Um, and uh, yeah, they actually, that's also the reason that they rub things with their cheeks and their chins as they have scent glands in both their cheeks and under their chin. Uh, and that, so like they'll rub anything. They'll rub a chair. They'll rub you. They are marking things that they like. And it's like, that's mine now. That's mine now. This chair, this human, this hand, this table, all mine. <laughs> um, and when they do these behaviors, uh, coupled with things like purring, it's a really good indicator that they are happy, they're content, and they love the person or the thing that they are rubbing up against, cuddling with. And yes, so I looked at this video. I really do think that the kitty likes you. He probably likes the security of touching your hand and grabbing it with his paw. He has a positive association with you as a source of comfort. So that's why he will like reposition his paw on top of your hand. Cause it's like, this is a thing I like. It brings me comfort to kind of push my paw into your hand. And so if you move it, he'll just move his paw back on your hand. I mean, you know, it is kind of similar to holding hands uh, with people. I think that we do need to remember sometimes that, yes, we can't anthropomorphize animals too much, but we also have to remember we are just big, weird animals. And at some point in the past, you know, our, our behaviors, things like holding hands, kissing, there may have been some like kind of weird evolutionary reason for these things, but eventually it turned into just kind of pure affection, pure love. And I think that can be said for some of animal behaviors as well, where, yeah, technically, you know, maybe like rubbing things with their paws or rubbing things with their cheeks and their chin is like scent marking. It's marking their territory. But then I think there is room there for they associate this behavior with, you know, marking things that they like. And then it may kind of become just this sign of affection, something they enjoy doing. They're not coldly calculating these things. They may just be feeling love, feeling affection, feeling comfort, and then doing these behaviors. And I think that's very similar to what humans do when we when we hug each other, when we kiss and hold hands, things like that. So, yeah, your, your kitty likes you. Uh, you and the kitty sit in a tree making kitty biscuits. All right. So on to the next listener question. I was listening to your recent episode on animal perception and your guest hosting on Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Can You Communicate with Neutrinos? I started wondering if there have been any studies to see if people who are deemed color deficient have their vision shifted into what we normally consider invisible light. It occurs to me that some people would only have one or two cones to pick up on light and cause deficiency, but with the overwhelming number of animals who see in parts of the spectrum we normally don't, what if some of these people are able to see light the rest of us can't? My nephew is blue deficient, and after hearing you talk about Bonet's cataract surgery, I started wondering if he might be sensitive to infrared light. This is from Tom. Hi, Tom. This is a really interesting question. So, the issue with us being able to see UV light is that typically it can't make it through our lens. So the lens is, I mean, it's its a lens, a, a biological lens that focuses light 
onto the back of our eyes, onto the retina. And this is how we can focus on things, see clearly. So this lens actually filters out UV light, most UV light. Uh, and this is thought to be possibly advantageous because maybe it's protecting our retinas from UV light because UV light can be damaging to cells. Um, but another theory is that there needs to be some filtering of light out of the spectrum because like when you when you have more light coming into the eye, you may be sacrificing sort of clarity, being able to focus for a broader spectrum. So uh, those are a couple of theories why we have lenses that filter out UV light. Um, so this is why the, the fact that the lens is the thing filtering out this UV light is why people with cataract surgery where the lens is removed or removed and replaced with an artificial lens can see more UV light than people typically can. So um, this is that's the theory behind why maybe Monet was able to see UV light because he had uh, his cataracts removed. Uh, nowadays, you actually can have your cataracts removed, or if you have something wrong with the eye, you can have uh, your lens replaced with an artificial lens. And this artificial lens helps you focus light, but it doesn't block out UV light as much as a biological lens does. And so it lets in more of that UV light. So people who have had this surgery uh, report being able to see more UV light, and they report it as being sort of this violet blue color. And actually, some UV light can get through our natural lenses. Some research has shown that young adults can detect UV wavelengths of around 315 nanometers. And there's also a wide variation in individuals in like what range of UV light that they can see. So UV light is a shorter wavelength. So uh, it's going to be harder to see the light the shorter the wavelength is because that falls off further and further from our normal range of vision. So, uh, yeah, in, in terms of these these subjects that were tested on their ability to see this UV light, there was a range in terms of how many people could see, like, um, you know, the, the wavelengths of light and which wavelengths they could see, which is really interesting. Uh, in terms of why there are these variations, uh, it's not very well understood. They seemed to find some correlation between sensitivity and the male sex, which is really weird. I, I don't know of any um, understanding why that is. There is also decreased UV sensitivity for those who frequently wore glasses or contact lenses. That seems a little more understandable. Usually if you have glasses or contact lenses, maybe there is some issue with the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the way that the lens contracts over the eye. So maybe the lens is blocking out more UV light. I'm not, not exactly sure, but that's an interesting finding. Uh, there's also decreased UV sensitivity for people of older age. So young adults can actually see more UV light than older adults. Again, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe there's some Something that happens to the lens as you age and it lets in less UV light. That's It's very interesting. It seems relatively new research, like the idea that we can even see some UV light is a relatively new, uh, new research. So I'm really interested to see kind of where they go with that. So on to your other question, which is like the correlation between seeing UV light or colorblindness, uh, aka color deficiency. 
So colorblindness or color vision deficiency, that latter name for it is a lot more accurate because it's not that people can't see color at all. It's about the range of color that they can see and how that color is going to be interpreted by the brain when you're getting the kind of signals that you're getting from the eye. So uh, it represents a shift in the visible light spectrum that an individual's eye can detect and distinguish between. So in general, you have three basic types of cones. You have uh, blue, green, and red. There are the cones that are sensitive to the shorter wavelengths. Those are the blue cones. There's the middle wavelengths, green, and longer wavelengths, or red. Um, so this is a spectrum. These aren't really distinct categories. So your blue cones aren't only going to be picking up on blue. Uh, green cones aren't only going to be picking up on green and so on. And there's actually overlap of what these cones can pick up on. So a quote-unquote blue cone and a quote-unquote green cone may both be activated at the same time uh, in terms of their the range of wavelengths of light that they can pick up on overlapping. Like imagine, I mean, when you look at sort of the visualizations of like what your cones can pick up on, it's usually a bell curve in terms of like a wavelength of light and these bell curves actually overlap. So the mixture of activation of the types of cones as well as the strength of activation results in the full spectrum of color uh, for typically sighted people. But someone with color deficiency will actually have more overlap of what their cones are picking up on than someone with typical vision. So there, there's actually several types of color deficiency and several different causes. So there's total color blindness, which is like the inability to see any color, and it's called uh, monochromacy. But this is actually not really a disorder of the eye. This is typically a disorder of the brain. So your eye can actually perceive color, pick up on color, but there is something that happens as that information is getting passed from the eye to the brain where the brain cannot process that color. So uh, in terms of sort of like um, problems with the actual eyeball, there are things like um, dichromacy, where you can only perceive uh, two colors. But then there's a whole range of issues with, uh, with color vision in terms of like when you have anomalous or missing cones, uh, in terms of how your able to distinguish between the wavelengths of light, the quote-unquote blue, green, and red wavelengths of light, uh, and then perceive a clear color from that. So for a lot of people with color deficiency, they will have much more overlap of what their cones are picking up on than someone with typical uh, vision. So for some people with color deficiency, their red cones, so the longest wavelength uh, sensitive cones, are actually downshifted in sensitivity to more mid-range wavelengths, so the quote-unquote green wavelengths, and will pick up on green colors. So this means that when they're looking at something green, it will actually appear more reddish. So it comes out a kind of amber or brown because it's activating more of those red cones. And so those red cones are saying, hey, brain, this is a reddish color, even though, you know, it, it is, quote, like, truly green, of course, <laughs> when we're talking about true reality and our brain's perception of it, it gets into a whole philosophical conversation that maybe I am not qualified to do, but uh, very interesting. So 
when the green cones, so those mid-range wavelength cones are upshifted sometimes in terms of like either they're anomalous or there's some issue with these cones, they may actually start to detect wavelengths of light closer to the red spectrum. And this actually uh, results in seeing green colors as yellowish. So uh, both of these color deficiencies are categorized as red-green color blindness, and they make it difficult for people to distinguish light on the red-green spectrum. So they can see reds and greens, but then it gets they get more muddled because you have the more overlap in terms of when these cones are becoming activated. So in terms of Tom's question, it sounds like Tom's nephew uh, might have blue-yellow color blindness. I, I, I don't know for sure. I'm just guessing, which means that the cones are sensitive to short, means that the cones that are sensitive to short wavelengths of light, like blues, violets, or even shorter wavelengths like UV, are actually more upshifted to be sensitive to mid-wavelengths than they are in a typically sighted person. So that means when you look at blues, you'll see more greenish hues and it will be dimmer. Uh, in fact, sometimes blues like come out as almost like black. It also affects how you see purples, which will come out as being more reddish. So from how I understand it, this would actually make it more difficult to perceive UV light because it's harder to pick up on shorter wavelengths of light and distinguish them from mid-wavelengths of light. But there are actually some studies that look into how people experience the world with color deficiency because I think it is it's important to remember that like if you have a different perception right like you have a different way of a different sensory experience from someone else that doesn't make it worse it may make it more difficult because our society largely caters to sort of the the typical sighted person's experience. We don't often make a great effort to um, accommodate people who have any kind of like vision uh, disorder, which, you know, I think is a shame. But uh, so it can make things difficult. Like, you know, we have a lot of color-coded things that may be more difficult for someone with a color deficiency. But just because you have like a, 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 different, uh, a different sort of um, sensory experience doesn't make it like inherently worse. So there are some theories that people that have various forms of colorblindness may actually be able to pick up on certain patterns better. Uh, there was a theory that they may actually be able to pick up on camouflage better. There's been mixed science about this, like some research has not been able to really find this, but there has been some research establishing that people with certain types of red-green color blindness, uh, they can actually distinguish different shades of khaki much better uh, than the norm, which, you know, I, I think that it means that there could be a lot of other areas in which, like, say, someone with a blue light uh, deficiency, like, maybe they can pick up on certain shades or certain patterns better than the norm. I, I wasn't able to find any specific research on this, but I think that this idea that when you have a certain sensory quote unquote deficiency, you may actually have a stronger sensory experience in another way. And so I think that's a completely reasonable idea. And, and you know, I think we see that actually with some people who are uh, have complete blindness, 
uh, will actually become very sensitive to sound to the ex extent that there are people who are blind who are able to make a clicking sound with their tongue and actually have learned how to do a form of human echolocation where they can use that to and like listen for the echo and use that to perceive their environment, which is really fascinating. It's amazing. I think it's so important to understand how adaptive our brains can be when we have a a sensory experience that is, you know, is different than what is typical. So I think that's a great question. I will keep my eyes peeled for any more research on, um, you know, the experience of people with color deficiency. I, I think it is, uh, it's really important. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. On to the last listener question. I really enjoyed your latest Halloween show. Have you heard of another scary animal? The water deer, a.k.a. the vampire deer who has fang-like tusks sticking out of its mouth like a slavering Dracula. Speaking of normal deer, I've heard they sometimes eat eggs, squirrels, and other small animals. Watch out, Thumper, your listener, Michael D. So, first of all, yes, that is correct. Deer will sometimes eat meat. They are, of course, herbivores. They're not considered omnivores, like true omnivores, but on occasion, they, they will be opportunistic. They'll eat meat. Um, I don't think it's strictly well established why they do this. My assumption would be just, you know, taking advantage <laughs> of a situation, essentially. But yeah, they, they, they're typically herbivores, but they will on occasion eat meat, <laughs> which is kind of creepy. I don't know why. I mean, you know, I'm not creeped out by a raccoon that's an omnivore, but a deer eating meat, it's, uh, it's something, something off about that. In terms of the water deer, yes, I do know about the water deer. I love them. I was obsessed with these guys ever since seeing a taxidermied one as a college student. I even wrote a whole paper on them about the, uh, there's some uh, controversy about whether females have a tuft of fur on their lips that is mimicking the male tusk. And what that might mean, why that might be the case. Uh, it's not, I, I was just, you know, basically looking at the existing literature and wasn't doing any um, independent research, but I wasn't doing any studies on it. But uh, still, I, I have been really fascinated with this, this idea that the controversy surrounding why the females seem to have this lip tuft. And of course, the fact that they are deer with giant fearsome looking things. They are incredible. So 
Uh, I don't think I saved that paper, by the way. So thank goodness for you guys. You don't have to see any of my college writing. (laughs) So water deer are small deer found in China and Korea. They're also known as vampire deer, given the large fangs that the males sport. Females actually have much smaller canines. But like I mentioned before, uh, they have these tufts of fur that can sometimes be mistaken for fangs. And there's this whole conversation and evolutionary biology are these tufts of fur you know like some kind of intentional mimicry is it just coincidence and if it is mimicry why um so yeah it is an interesting topic so uh the deer have no antlers but the teeth are used in a similar way to antlers uh they are used for combat so the large fangs are the size of like a long finger they are not used for sucking blood Uh, The deer are herbivores. Instead, the fangs are used in territorial fights between males. They can be used either as straight-up weapons or simply to intimidate other males. Uh, An interesting thing about the fangs is that they are actually partially mobile. They fit relatively loose in the socket, and so the deer can use its mm, facial muscles to actually move the fangs slightly, shifting them out of the way when they're eating or even shifting them forward when threatening a rival. So really incredible. I love those deer. If you haven't seen a water deer, look it up. It's like Bambi who has uh, gone feral and is about to, uh, you know, uh, suck your blood, attack you. Um, fortunately, they aren't actually vampires. They do not suck blood, but yes, they do. They do actually viciously attack each other. There have been male water deer with like these vicious looking scars on them. Uh, they, they will not fight if they can help it. Like if they can just sort of use them as intimidation, but they, they will actually attack each other and it can be usually not fatal, but it can be just like antlers actually. So Uh, We have come to the end of the emails, but now we are on to uh, the mystery animal sound game. Every week I play a mystery animal sound and you, the listener, try to guess who is squawking, who is making that sound. It can be any animal in the world. This is not just birds. Uh, It's not just bears. It's not just dogs or cats. It's anything, anything in the world on land or in the sea. So... Here is last week's mystery sound, and the hint was simply, Happy Halloween! I never more. Waka 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 waka. I never more. Waka 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 waka. Alright, can you guess who is making that sound? Well, congratulations to Grant W., Stephen M., and Emily M., who wrote in and guessed correctly that this is the raven. So ravens can mimic human speech, as can other types of corvids, including crows, magpies, jays, rooks, jackdaws, and probably more. Uh, The reason we don't see a lot of talking corvids compared to like parrots is that they're typically not pets, nor really should they be, in my opinion. So they don't spend the time learning human speech. Along with parrots, many birds can mimic human speech, actually. So minas, starlings, mockingbirds, lyrebirds, and many more. The reason parrots are so particularly good at talking in human speech is not only are they very intelligent, 
and are able to memorize a wide repertoire of sounds, they actually have a single syrinx. So the syrinx is like the bird version of a larynx. Larynx is the voice box of a human. The syrinx is the voice box of a bird. A lot of songbirds have two syrinxes, and that actually can result in these like incredibly complex bird songs. If you've ever heard these like otherworldly bird trills that sound almost digital, it's because they have these two syrinxes and they can form these extremely complex sounds. But uh, having those two syrinxes means your voice is not going to sound very human, whereas a parrot having that single syrinx uh, can more clearly mimic human speech because we humans have only one larynx. Um, so compare the sounds of a parrot mimicking human speech. Very interesting. You can see that that parrot has a lot of trouble with the hard T sound because the T sound is not really produced with our uh, voice box as much as it is the tongue touching the teeth. Uh, although parrots do have strong tongues, so they can use their tongue a little bit to manipulate sounds. But yeah, that those those like the things that we make with our lips and our tongue are really hard for a bird to reproduce. Now here's a starling mimicking human speech. And remember the starling has those two syrinxes instead of one. I like to play violin music. Here's a station music. I like to play violin music. Here's a station Here's a station. <laughs> so that is a starling telling Alexa to play violin music. And then uh, Alexa responding. Bo both uh, is actually produced by the starling. Um, both are talking, but the parrot has a little, I guess a little more of a human inflection. The starling has this like interesting robotic quality to its voice due to having those two syrinxes. Personally, I love the sound of a starling imitating a human voice. I think there's something really I don't know, eerie about it. I, I, I really quite like it, and I think it's quite impressive. Um, but yeah, so that is why parrots are the most famous for make impersonating human sounds. But I feel like ravens sometimes, for me, like get it even more spookily similar to a human voice, uh, which I do love. So on to this week's mystery animal sound. The hint... This alarm call is no laughing matter. <laughs> can you guess who is making that sound? Well, if you can, write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. And if you have any listener questions, write to me too. I do these periodically. Next week, we will be back to the typical format where I have a guest on and everything. But I do like answering your questions. So... Thank you so much for listening. And if you have like a few, just a couple minutes, you know, and you want to leave a rating or a review, I really, really appreciate that. I read all of the reviews, all your feedback. Uh, it makes me feel like connected to you, the audience, and it also helps out the podcast. So I, I really appreciate that. And thank you so much to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.